Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Way. Back again with you guys for another episode of what is our match reaction series. A couple of days late, unfortunately. There's been a lot of hectic stuff going on over here. But we're glad to bring you a show looking back at the game against Newcastle. In the end, I'm joined this morning by Charlie. How are you doing, mate? You good, Joel? Yeah, good, thank you. I, I, was still, I still want a high from, from the Newcastle game, to be fair. Obviously, we'll go into it, but uh, that... I keep on speaking about this light at the end of the tunnel and it's it's still there and I'm really happy that it is. So just looking forward to another weekend of football. I, I've said it to you before in, in match reaction streams, agendas and everything. Once we've had our game, I'm just then looking forward to the next weekend because, uh, I mean, it's really getting down to the nail now, isn't it? So it's it's getting really, really interesting. And I mean, Arsenal seem to be doing really, really well at the moment. A brilliant response from Man City. So it, it seems like it's all to play for at the moment. Yeah, it does. I mean, we've kept ourselves in the race. I think if Arsenal had dropped points in this one, then you'd probably say the title race is probably done and dusted for Arsenal, to be honest. I think they're going to have to rely on beating... Brighton and Forest and Wolves on the final day as well to have any hope. Um, I mean, do you see City dropping any points in, in their remaining? I mean, I'll read through their fixtures that they've got left. Of course, they're playing at, uh, Real Madrid tonight in Spain. They then go to Everton, who've just battered Brighton 5-1. Um, they've then got Chelsea at home after their second leg tie against Real Madrid. They then go to Brighton on the 24th of May. Brentford is their final game of the season away from home. So it's three away games and one home game against Chelsea. So it's not the easiest run in the world. Do you see them dropping points? Uh, if they played the way like they did against Arsenal, then I don't because they just kind of I would kind of like demolish us really with how, how well they played and their structure, how they set up. So if they continuously play like that, then I, I'd say no, they wouldn't. But you never know. I think I, I don't know how many wins on the bounce they've had, but if they keep on going, then it will actually be very, very impressive. Um, we know how well Brentford can actually do um, against the top six. But with it being the last game of the season, you would expect City to kind of go out all guns blazing. So, but then again, I mean, if Everton are able to beat Brighton 5-1 away, you never know. Maybe they could produce something special against City. I, I doubt it. But then again, they also beat us. So there's, there's also that. And... Brighton can be a very good side, despite their loss against Everton yesterday. They can be a very, very good side, and they've been very, they've been very, very impressive this season. And Deserby's done amazing, uh, amazingly with them ever since he took over from Potter. So, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if they did drop points, but then I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. It's, it's yeah. kind of one of them. It's, it's a difficult one to say, but. I would say that they will drop points, whether they drop enough points for us to overtake them or catch up to them is a different kind of conversation. Yeah. I mean, if they were to draw against Everton, um, or their game in hand is the is the Brighton game. Yeah. If they were to to lose that game, um, obviously that would still leave them a point ahead of us. Um, we would then need them to to draw, um, I think if they draw two games, which of course would leave them getting two extra points, leaving them on 84, uh, 
it's I don't think it's enough. I think they have to lose one of their games basically um, for us to, to kind of overtake them come the end of the season because the goal difference is so significantly better than ours. Um, we need to make sure that we're we're winning because it's it's so difficult to see them, you know, dropping points in in, in a draw, let alone a loss as well. So yeah. Arsenal are going to be reliant on some big things happening. Um, but they kept themselves in the race with the win against Newcastle, which was an impressive victory. It didn't feel like it was going to be an impressive victory after about four or five minutes when Newcastle were very much the team on top but hit the post through Murphy and then the penalty controversy happened. I was just reading Dale Johnson on ESPN's uh, VAR report in which he's supported the decision to overturn it, although was a bit surprised at the length of time that it took to overturn the decision. And trust me, being in the ground, it was an agonizing wait to to find out what's going to happen. In reflection, it shouldn't have taken three plus minutes to make that decision, but it did. What did you make of the start of the game? Yeah, it, I agree with you with how you were saying it, it didn't seem like it was going to go the way that it was. They started at Newcastle, started very well. And I agree with you. I don't know why it took so long. I was watching it on the TV. I, I don't think it was biased. I was watching it with my mates. I was saying, I really don't think this is biased. I can clearly see it hits his leg. He moves his arm out the way, lifts his leg up. Yeah. And I can't see at all it hitting his arm because they were trying to decide whether it hits his leg first and then his arm or his arm and then his leg. I didn't even see it hit his arm. I, I don't know whether I looked at it close enough from where I was sitting uh, when I was watching the TV, but I really couldn't see it hit his arm at all. So, yeah, I completely agree. I don't know why it took so long. And being in the stadium, yeah, I I can, I can imagine it took about, it felt at least double the amount of time that it was when I was watching it on the TV. But then Odegaard comes up with something fantastic again to get us going into the game, get into a rhythm. And he he's... Well, Captain Fantastic again at it again, like he was against Southampton. He kind of gets us in the rhythm of things. He gets us going. He kind of he kind of lifts the whole team, and it kind of pinpoints the significance of him in our team. Whether he plays well in a game, I mean, he didn't play very well against City, but then no one else did, so that's fair enough. And then, but then in different games, he's the one that kind of he may not play really well in a game but he still manages to produce something he manages to create something out of nothing is what it seems I mean I think he still when he had the shot outside the box he still had to get it through two Newcastle players or past two or four Newcastle players I think it went through sharp shares or um Botman's legs to even yeah. go in one corner so it's a ridiculously accurate shot and a very once again, another f- bloody san- uh, satisfying shot from Odegaard. And it just kind of like set the pace for the game. Newcastle obviously were battling very, very hard, but then we matched that at times. We really did. And I think it's a different kind of Arsenal that we had seen uh, from this season that we were kind of, we matched their aggressiveness in this game. But then also we saw kind of glimpses of the Arsenal that we'd been seeing this season of kind of like tiki-taka, managing to get out of pockets of space, getting it out wide and when we're being closed down. And then that just helped us massively going forward. And 
as I say, that set the tone for the game. Ramsdale, fantastic again, keeping us going, keeping us in the game as well, making a fantastic save against, I think that was Shah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and they hit the post as well. So you could say that there was a bit of luck in there, but then also you could say we create our own luck. So especially with Martinelli and the own goal from Shaw, I, I think he did fantastically to even get in the position that he was in. And yeah, as I say, we create our own luck uh, sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. We did. And there was some fortune certainly about um, the way in which the game started. On Martin Erdegaard, for me, the guy's world-class now. There's not a debate about this. The player is, um, I think, he'll be deserving of the Player of the Season awards come the end of the campaign, whether we've won the league or not, um, to get, you know, now to overtake Frank Lampard, Yaya Toure in terms of non-penalty goals for a season is a ridiculous achievement, especially considering that is what people asked of him last season. His biggest critics last season said he needs to score more goals. He needs to assist more. He needs to contribute more um this season the rhetoric has changed from his critics that he needs to perform in big games well Sunday was a big game it was an absolute must win game for Arsenal and there's no beating around the bush with this one it was the biggest game for the rest of the Arsenal season they had to win that not many people said Arsenal would win and one of the biggest reasons why we did win was because of Martin Odegaard's contribution not just with his goal but with his progression his passing his shot creating actions I was looking at his FB ref uh, kind of profile for this season. Non-penalty goals is in the 99th percentile. Shots, he's in the 99th percentile. Expected AG, which is to do with the assisted goals. Um, so talking about kind of a pass that assists a shot that should lead to a goal, he's in the 99th, uh, sorry, he's in the 98th percentile. Talking about shot creating actions for his teammates. That's not goals he's scoring. That's, you know, chances he's creating. He's in the 98th percentile. Progressive passes, 90th percentile. Uh, touches in the attacking penalty area, 98th percentile. Progressive passes um, received as well in the 95th percentile. Oh. He is way above, like, nearly everybody in the same position as him um, for what he is doing. There is no debate at this stage. He's, he's world-class. Can he do more? Yeah, and that's scary. You know, that's not a criticism of Odegaard. That's a scary realisation that he can do even better. For me, the one area of development that he's got to do is that in those games where we dance with the ball as much, like the Man City away game, the Liverpool second half, um, the Manchester United second um, first half, like things like this, like we need to be better. Uh, and Odegaard needs to be better when out of possession and needs to work out how he's going to do that. That's the next stage of his development. But... It's as simple as that. Like he's, he's a world-class player and, and there is little debate surrounding that now. It's just about what you can do to get even better and become an absolute elite player amongst the best players in the world. Um, you know, because he's just, I think, one step below that elite level. Um, we obviously, after scoring, um, had some big, big chances. Odegaard actually had one of those chances just before halftime with his right foot. Pope saves well. Um, Ramsdale also has a great save from Joe Willock before this. Saka and Martinelli had chances that Pope saved too. It felt like the second half of the first half was all about the goalkeepers and keeping them their teams basically in that game. People will talk about the fact that they think that Newcastle maybe were unfortunate to come away from anything from this game, but I personally look at it in the in the context of Arsenal could have been three, potentially even four nil up by half time. Arguably should have been and could have been out of sight. Is is there anything to look at in a concerning way that Saka and Martinelli missed those opportunities? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say concerning, 
but then also you would ask the question what how how didn't they finish that i mean i think it was saka's shot that pope saved it barely looked like he moved he got he say he looked, i think he saved it with his chest he just kind of like went like that and it just hit it hit his chest and it went out you sh- you would think that in that position when you're one on one with the keeper you should make the keeper kind of like work a little bit harder than what he did in that situation um maybe the newcastle defender did well to close Saka down, put him off a little bit than what kind of that meant that he didn't have that space to do what he wanted to do in that situation. But then that's how you should adapt in that situation uh, from Saka, uh, for example. But then also Martinelli, I think that he should have scored one on one with the keeper. And as you say, we probably should have been three, four up in that in that um, second half of the first half. And it definitely was about the keepers. Um, I think, to be fair, I say that Ramsdale kind of kept us going in the game. Pope did that massively for Newcastle. I think that he um, he produced some fantastic saves and really, really did keep them in the game of of what of what they could as as much as they could have been. Uh, obviously, we we kept a clean sheet, but then again. It could it could have possibly even been embarrassing for Newcastle if we were able to 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 finish our shots, put them in the back of the net. But then that obviously didn't happen because of because Pope made some good saves. But then again, yes, you would have thought that maybe these chances, Martinelli and Saka, I would say, um, specifically, probably should have been put away. But I don't. But I I think. Because we won that game, we're not talking about it as much, maybe. If it was a different result, I think we would be kind of saying, how didn't you score that? That should be in the back of the net. Because to be fair, it should. that Both of them should be. Um, they were kind of like the standout chances that I thought should have been put in the back of the net for sure. I really did think that we were going to be able to go uh, to free up before the second half even started. And it was a shame that we didn't because then we would have kind of like, it would have made it a lot easier for us in the second half. It would have kind of felt like the Fulham game where we played at their ground, uh, where we went 3 up in the first half and we were able to kind of like cruise in the second half. So it was unfortunate, but then, I, as I say, we're, we're, we don't need to talk about it as much because we have obviously managed to keep a clean sheet, win two 0 But if it was a different, if um, if it was a different story, different ending, it'd be a different conversation. So, concerning, but not at the same time. Yeah, look, I would love to have seen us you know, take those chances, but we ended up winning the game, so it's not necessarily going to be as as talked about. I think, you know, had the game ended 1-1, 2-2, we might be talking about those chances in a lot more detail and maybe Saka and Martinelli would be facing, and Erdogan would be facing a little bit more criticism for mm. missing them. But, uh, you know, uh, the second half starts and it starts in almost mirror fashion to the first. Newcastle hit the post within the first few <laughs> minutes again um, and Arsenal looked to try and hit on the counter throughout the game. Um Newcastle, I was really impressed with Alexander Izak. I think he's a fantastic footballer. The fact he was playing kind of that position on that left-hand side as well. He had Ben White on toast like a number of times. He absolutely, I was, in the first half in particular, there was a couple of occasions where like right in front of the press box, White's obviously trying to challenge Izak. He stops the ball, then does the little quick turn and touch and pass him. And it was like in an instant. Like some of his technical ability for a player as tall as him is really, really impressive. But 
I thought it was in the second half and what bled through the first half. And actually, there's a couple of people in the chat box, Umar being the first and, and Moses being the second. Jorginho really tied everything together for Arsenal with his calmness on the ball. He actually progressed further up the field on a number of occasions than Xhaka did. Like He was quite advanced in his positioning and Xhaka dropped him back. I've been looking at a couple of... Um, average position chart sent to me uh, by a couple of the the listeners, James being one of them, um, that kind of highlighted that. And I think that's the press-resistant nature that Jorginho brings to the team. People talk about his lack of mobility or lack of athleticism. But actually, his positioning, his reading, the way in which he progresses the ball, it's actually really press-resistant. And that enabled us to get out of the box and our own area and our defensive third so often. What did you make of his performance? He did... I think he did fantastically yesterday. The Jorginho is the calm head that I think we've been missing in the last few games that Partey has kind of, I wouldn't say crumbled under pressure, but he, he hasn't been playing amazingly, has he? he? And Jorginho is that person that we've needed to keep a calm head, an experienced person in the middle of, mid, uh, um, in the middle of midfield to keep the team calm, keep us going, lead us through these difficult games where we need someone like that. And it seemed like he was popping up everywhere on the pitch. As you were saying, he was attacking, he was defensive. You would see him pop up every so often. But I know that he... So he got an assist, obviously. I know that it wasn't the most majestic of assists with... Uh, I mean, it was literally just a little pass off to Odegaard, but... <laughs> He got that assist. He was in that position. It seemed like he was going to go one way out to Saka and then he turned, passed it to Odegaard. Odegaard's in a massive space. So they help each other in that in that kind of like, in that scenario where Jorginho's in that area, Odegaard runs behind him. He's in a massive bit of space, lay him off, shoot. And that's fantastic. He, he doesn't just break the play up and pass it out. He creates space for himself and others around him. And that's what you saw in the game. And that's why Odegaard was able to score. And I mean, even when they, even when Isaac hit the post uh, in the second half, Jorginho was that first person to meet, to be able to clear the ball out of the box. I don't, I don't know whether yeah. it went out of the box, but he was the first person to react to it, to get it out, to header it out. So he's getting in the really kind of like important areas. It's not just the fact that, as I said, he's passing it out. He's breaking the play up. He's getting in those really important areas that maybe Partey wasn't, that he possibly, that Partey probably should have been in those areas. And I think he deservedly won man of the match yesterday. Um, I mean, I, I know that the Arsenal player of the match, I think that was Ramsdale, but the but the but the man of the match on the day uh from on Sky Sports was um was Jorginho. And I think rightly so. Um I didn't really think that there was anyone else in the conversation, really, because he stood out that much for me that he was able to keep the team calm. I say calm, he he when we're on the ball, he keeps us calm. And then, obviously, as I was saying, we were aggressive in the way that we needed to be. We weren't too aggressive in terms of, like, yellow cards weren't flying left, right and centre. But I also think that was partially because Jorginho was able to 
make sure that we weren't in a position where we were giving away yellow cards. There, there. I think there was a uh, a point in the game where he was possibly caught in midfield and yeah, he, he rushed at back. one point and there was but, a transition. Yeah, but, but that was it, one. That happens. Yeah. That happens, and a player can't be perfect every single game, and it's difficult to. It's very, very difficult to be perfect. So. A mistake can happen every so often. And luckily, this wasn't a detrimental mistake to the Arsenal side. So yeah. I, I can't praise him enough for the for the performance yesterday. And maybe he is what we've been missing over the last few games to replace Partey. I mean, me and Umar were talking... Well, Umar specifically was talking about rotation in the team where we pro- probably should have rotated Partey for Jorginho in these moments where it is really down to the nail. We need to be battling. We need someone with an experienced and calm head in the midfield like Jorginho and Arteta wasn't doing that. And maybe Arteta's listened to Umar because he's managed to bring out Jorginho and Kivior of that. And I'm I'm sure we'll end up speaking about him at some point. But yeah, Jorginho, fantastic. Yeah, no, he was absolutely brilliant. And, and I spoke to him actually after the game uh, and you can hear that clip right now. When you obviously came in a few months ago, Thomas Partey was the starter and now that's two successive Premier League starts. Did you foresee yourself getting into the Arsenal team and starting ahead of Thomas in this side circle? I think we we had two different players that can adapt for the coach in different games. So I think the coach has two, two good choice in depending on what games and what type of players he wants on the pitch. And uh, the only thing we can do is be ready when he needs us and give our best to help the team. Thank, Thank you. Appreciate that, mate. That was Jorginho speaking uh, after the game. Uh, I can tell you, he had, he'd done like four bits of media before he got round to us. And, and uh, he, he wasn't particularly happy about him to do the uh, the fourth bit, but he still stood and answered the questions. So we're very appreciative of him for uh, for chatting to us after the game because it was a weird mix zone after, because usually mix zones are like in the stadium. Um, there's like a section where you see obviously like the the, the, the sponsorship backing, which you've often seen. Like you saw that with Jacques as well, and we've, we've shown before. And, um, this was actually pitch side by the dugout. So we actually go down to the dugouts where um, uh, where the players were. And what we noticed was a great tactic. We've talked about this before on the channel, like players aren't always the most keen to, to talk to media after games, which you can kind of understand. But the Newcastle players have a great tactic of avoiding speaking to the media, which is where they use their own children uh, to get out of it. Kieran Trippier came out pushing a pram along the pitch sides. Um, I think it was uh, top Matt Target had his, his young daughter with him as well. And it's like, they know you're not going to approach them while they're dealing with being a dad in those moments. I thought that was quite a funny little uh, glimpse behind the scenes. In that moment. I had a good chat with actually Edu after the game who came out and spoke to me and Simon Collings from the Even Standard about Kivior. So that was good. And speaking of Kivior, um, he, like Jorginho, is, I think, starting to prove to be a bit of an astute signing. I don't, you know, we've only got a small sample size of what to expect from him so far. But in the last two games, he's come into the team and really, I think, shown what we've lacked, you know, from a technical side of things as a centre-back that Rob Holding's not necessarily been able to bring. We look more comfortable on the ball. We look more confident on the ball coming out from the back. And, you know, he he played some really good, clear moments and never really looked vulnerable in either of the last two games. No, I think my comments on Kivior a couple of weeks ago have come back to haunt me. <laughs> uh, you won't be I the mean, only one, Charlie. I know, fair. I know. But... Obviously, I said that, yes, we hadn't seen much of him before these couple of games. 
but I wasn't impressed. And these last couple of games that he's can't that he's replaced Rob Holden has he's been fantastic, and he's been that player that we've been wanting to replace Rob Holding with. And even though he's a left-footed uh, centre back, he is being he is managing very very well on that right side in the defence, and. You can't really tell that he's kind of that he is that left sided centre back that that he needs to be on the left side. He is managing to adapt, be on the right hand side, and kind of complement everyone else in that back line. I thought, and even when, so say, uh, I'm using him as an example. I don't think he actually stood out at this point, but say Jorginho is caught in the in the middle. Kivior is able to be that person to pick up the pieces that Rob Holden hasn't been able to do over these last few games that we've been missing Saliba. And you know what? They're actually... he he Kivior is actually kind of reminding me a little bit of Saliba. Glim, there's glimpses of him in... Uh, there's glimpses of Kivior in Saliba and glimpses of Saliba in Kivior. I think that's that's kind of like what, what I'm seeing in these last right. couple of games. Hmm. I can't pinpoint what exactly, but I, th- I think it's the technical there's... side of things. I think it's his calmness yeah. on the ball that he showed. Yeah. I don't think he had that against Sporting. I don't think he had that when he came on against Liverpool. He didn't impress in those two fixtures that he played in. And that's why I've got sympathy for Arteta. And that's why I don't, I'm not on board with the criticism train that's steaming through Arsenal fans at the moment toward Arteta about not bringing him in earlier. I don't, oh, I yeah. don't buy into that because I yeah. just think there was not the, the evidence previously. Now, if we'd not seen Kivior at all up until this point, you know, and he'd now come in and had these games, I'd have more sympathy towards that side of the argument. But the fact of the matter is, is that we saw Kivior against Sporting, in which, in a game where he was in his natural position in a half-field stadium in Portugal, you know, against a team that yes were quick, but. Kivior is a quick defender at the same time and has shown that in the last two games. That necessarily wasn't the issue, but his passing wasn't necessarily the same as what it's been in the last two games. He hadn't shown the same composure. I did some digging. He's played just 230 minutes in a right centre-back slot for Spezia in games where they've never kept a clean sheet, only won one of those five fixtures as well. So I, I, I don't get the argument towards criticising Arteta for not bringing him in earlier. And... That's not to say that he's not been better than holding. He has, you know, and, I, and you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I wish he'd come in sooner yeah. in, in the team. But I'm not going to point the finger at Arteta for doing for not doing that sooner because I just don't think that Kivior being in over holding changes drastically the outcomes of the games we've played. For me, if Saka scores against West Ham, we win that game. If Ramsdale doesn't pass to Alcaraz, we probably win against Southampton. You know, if Kivior plays against Haaland, I still don't think the Man City game turns out any differently than it does if yeah. Holding's there. So I, I just can't see the finger pointing towards Arteta being as 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 kind of harsh as I think it has been on social media. I know social media is never the best measure to to appreciate, you know, level-headed thinking, but there are a lot of level-headed people that I know that are still being critical of, of Arteta. I just can't quite get on board with that. What do you make of that argument? I completely agree with you. I don't think Arteta should be criticised massively at all mm. uh, in kind of in this Kivior Rob Holden debate. I think 
holding over the past few years at Arsenal. He's actually been an okay centre-back for us. He's been a consistently, I'd say, just above average, maybe. Average, just above average centre-back for us that has kind of done the job every so often when he's when he's needed to. Yes, he's slipped up a, li- uh, a couple of times and obviously you can now see the difference when we've got Saliba and now Kivior. But you say in hindsight, if obviously if we knew that Kivior would be playing like he is, then obviously we would want to bring him in earlier. But then with the performances that he's had against Sporting, as you said, where he didn't play very well and Liverpool... Yes, he was chucked in the deep end at Anfield. It's a very difficult game, of course. But he was literally, as soon as he came on, I I was able to pick out mistakes that he made straight away. And I can see why Arteta hasn't kind of brought him into the side earlier because I'm, I'm guessing Arteta's thinking through this is, we're in a place where we need to win these games. It is, they, these are must-win. It is really down to the nail. It's getting to the end of the season. So it's going to be very difficult. And maybe we need someone that's a little bit more experienced in this Arsenal side. And Rob Holding is a bit more experienced than Kivior, where we may need him. So if we then chuck Kivior once again in the deep end against Newcastle today... And you never know, it could have gone the complete other way. It really could have, because if he's been chucked in the deep end against Liverpool, you would expect from the, I mean, from the performance that we had last season uh, um, at St. James's Park, obviously this season, completely new season, completely different from last season. But then also we had a very, very tough game at the Emirates against Newcastle. So it could have been, it could have gone either way for Arteta. Obviously, Kivior played really well last game. So he was able to play him again in this back four. But that experience may have kind of changed the way that Arteta was thinking. I shouldn't, I I don't think that he should be criticised at all, but I praise him now for bringing Kivior in. I think that's how we should be thinking because for bringing Kivior in at this stage, it's actually quite a bold move. As I was saying, from, from the reasons that I was just talking about, it is quite a bold move because you don't know how he's going to be playing in the, in the Premier League starting. You just, we yeah. couldn't tell at the time. We really couldn't. So yeah, that's, it was that Chelsea game in particular, one. like the Chelsea game we had after City. Like we had to win that game. We had mm. to respond to the City defeat. We had to go perfect. You know, for the last five games of the season, we had to be perfect. And he dropped Martinelli. He dropped Holding, uh, and he dropped Partey um, from that team against the Chelsea side that we know that we'd have a good opportunity to beat and that we could rotate in. So that when we had the opportunity, we did it. Now some people might say, well, we had the opportunity to do that against Southampton. You know, I believe honestly that we should have beaten that West Ham team before we played Southampton and we would have done had Saka scored the penalty. And so I don't necessarily see the need to change drastically the game against Southampton because that team that started against Southampton at home, Southampton, I think, have lost seven of their last eight games and we're the the team that they didn't lose against. We should be beating that team. That's not on holding. You know, the, the, the team that started with holding should beat that Southampton team. Facts. Like, and then you go into Man City, you're not going to change out holding for Kivior against Man City. You're not going to throw Kivior into that moment. I mean, talk about, you know, a trial by fire. And if it doesn't go well, you've then 
you severely damage that player's mindset. So you got the chance to do it against Chelsea. You, you swap the players, you make the changes. It works. We play better. You know, yes, Chelsea had a couple of chances, but we dominated that game, should have won by more. You know, and then you go into this Newcastle game where no one's given you a hope in hell. You've given Kivior a good ease in in that Chelsea game. He comes in with confidence after a good game against Chelsea and then has a great game. You know, so I think the way in which the, the team selection has been managed, I don't have any qualms with it. You know, in retrospect, I could say, yeah, Kivio could have come in instead of holding and maybe we should have gone with that run. But I just can't sit here and say that, you know, based upon what I saw from Kivio in the games before he was brought in because it weren't great. So, exactly. it, it, you know, it's I think that's the way we go with it. Anyway, obviously, we win the game with courtesy of an own goal from Fabian Cher. Uh, Gabriel Martinelli with a fantastic run. Again, some really good play out from the back. I, I don't think we need to overanalyze the the, the, the second goal. Um, what I do want to give a shout out to is Kieran Tierney's performance when he came off the bench. You know, we played against the team that are favourites to sign him at this moment in time is the irony of it. For me, I, I don't think we need to sell Tierney. You know, obviously if a bid comes in like 50-odd million quid, it's going to be difficult to turn that down. But if someone comes in with like 30 35 million pounds i'm not sure i'd necessarily would take it and i think a few weeks ago i was saying that i might have done but i think in retrospect i just don't think you're going to be able to bring in a left back you know that gives you as good competitiveness as, as he does i think kivior and tomiasu will act as potential depth options there in the future and i think terence pointed that out in the chat box um which i agree with but i don't think that we need to sell tierney this summer and i don't think we should I completely agree. I re- I do actually really like Tierney, and over and a couple of seasons ago, I thought he was actually arguably the best left back in the league. Uh, he was competing up up against uh, Robertson in in that in that kind of like debate, and he did fantastically. And he came in yesterday to replace Inchenko, who I didn't actually think played amazingly, and I'm guessing that's why Tierney actually came in. And I think the reason why we're talking about possibly selling Tierney, obviously he isn't getting the game time that he's wanting, but I think another reason is because he isn't fitting too well into this system where our left back, well, we've got inverted fullbacks that kind of push into the defensive midfielder roles when we've got the ball. And Tierney doesn't do that as well as Zinchenko. And I think because he doesn't do it as well as Zinchenko, it kind of it kind of highlights how good Sinchenko is in that area. So then we're saying, oh, we maybe don't need Tierney. We need to keep on playing Sinchenko. I completely disagree with that. I think it's good to have a backup or to rotate every so often in these situations. It was an aggressive game and Tierney is a much more aggressive left back than Sinchenko is. He's, he's, I think he's stronger on the ball. He's, str- he's stronger in tackles, I think. And, I mean, we were saying at the start of the season, and maybe there's still that conversation now, whether Tierney is a better defender, defensive left-back, than Zinchenko is. I think now that we've seen Zinchenko play really well for Arsenal over this season, it's possibly difficult to kind of say who's a better defender at this point, like a defensive left-back, but... I think in games like this, Tierney does very, very well. And he did. He did. We managed to keep a clean sheet when Zinchenko came off. And, I, yeah, I can't praise him enough, really, for yesterday's, uh, for Sunday's performance. I think he did fantastically well. Where 
once again, it's a very difficult game. It's not like he's obviously put in at the deep end, but it's a game where we're 2-0 up and over the last few games, we've lost 2-0 leads. So there's obviously that pressure on Arsenal. If we concede a goal, then it could completely change the game for us. And we managed to be com a compact back four. And I think he did fantastically in do it in being able to keep that compact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that Zinche on Zinchenko briefly, there's obviously, I think in the last few games, been a, a lot of focus on him defensively and what, the drawbacks of having him in the team are defensively. I think this is an argument for keeping Tierney that in games away at City, away at Anfield, no, you could probably start Tierney instead just to give you a bit of extra defensive solidity in those games. That said, the trade-off that what you get with the bit of more vulnerability defensive is Inchenko in is far outweighed by what he brings in an offensive sense. Like he, The contributions... the. The Chelsea game is involved in both of the build-ups for the goals for Erdegaard's uh, against Chelsea. He's involved in the build-up for all, pretty much all of the chances that we start creating um, uh, against Newcastle. You know, these these moments get lost in the highlights because often Zinchenko's influence is cut, you know, before we actually see uh, Zinchenko's involvement. You just see kind of the, the, the assist and the goal, but he's involved in the in the build-up, in the movement, in dragging players out of position, you know, being where he is influences the shape of the opposition and Arsenal use that to their advantage. You know, I'd say that he's great to kind of get leads in games, but once you've got that lead, you know, you can bring Tierney on. But at the same point, when you're playing against tougher sides, I think you could also start Tierney uh, away from home in some fixtures that I would probably like to see used more. And with the Champions League, I think we've got more excuse to rotate as well with Tierney. But if you're asking me what I think will happen, I think Tierney will go uh, in the summer, which is a shame. Um, but that's just kind of my feeling of the situation at the moment. Um, I think we'll end things there. We obviously talked about the ramifications of this and we talked about Man City right at the start of the show. So if you've come in late and you've missed that, rewind to the beginning because we did discuss that. But Charlie, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Just keep on playing the way that we've been playing. If any Arsenal players watching this... Just keep playing the way that we've been playing over the next few games. Keep it going. And we've got a few tough games. It's always going to be tough at the end of the season, but we've just got to keep going, keep going the way that we have been over the last couple of games. And we'll see what happens there. We've just got to hope City slip up. And yeah, just keep playing the way we've been playing. Absolutely. Uh, a massive thank you to Charlie uh, for joining us. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at charlieb underscore AFC1. You can find myself at Tom Cantor Media and all of our written work over at football.london. We've got a few pieces dropping for you today talking about a number of topics, including uh, Declan Rice and, and the current situation surrounding him. We've got a piece on Martin Erdegaard coming out a bit later. There is a piece about Jakob Kivior and kind of that whole debate around whether he should have been brought in sooner. That's already out. So make sure you're across all the pieces uh, over there. Uh, we'll see you again very soon. Have a fantastic day. Enjoy yourselves. Stay safe, stay well. And as always, keep following us down the Arsenal way.